0: Tim Shell, thou mayest, thou mayest choose between good and evil. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and today's podcast is all about the second half of East of Eden by John Steinbeck. The idea of the podcast is that we'll spend a month reading a book. Hopefully together, I'll split the book into two equal halves. On the second Friday of the month, I'll share my thoughts and yours on the first half of the book. Maybe make a few predictions. And when we finish reading the book, I'll publish part two of the podcast in a similar vein. That'll be on the last Friday of the month. We'll decide whether it's a book we'd recommend to a friend or not. Of course, you don't have to read anything at all. If you're into audible, then you can listen to the book, or you can do neither, of course, and just join me for the ride. I'll be summarizing what happens in the book just for you, but be aware there may be spoilers. You can leave a comment or start a conversation at the Bookshook YouTube channel, or send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So, this podcast is all about the second half of East of Eden from chapter 25 to the end. So let me just remind you of the questions I had at the end of the first half. What will happen to Cathy and her horrendous crimes? Will Charles' relationship with Cathy be exposed? Are the twins actually Charles's children? What will happen to Charles? And will Charles and Adam's father be found out? And will, like the story of Cain and Abel, Charles and Adam come to blows? So let's see. We left the book with Adam Agreeing to the medicine, Samuel gives him, telling him that Kathy is running a based whorehouse in Salinas. We begin the second part with Tom on his own at the ranch. He receives a telegram saying that Sam's dead. After the funeral, Adam goes to a bar in Salinas, gets drunk and inquires where Kate is. And the bartender tries to dissuade him. He says, go to Jenny's next door. And I'm thinking, "Uh uh-oh... So there's this big confrontation with Kate and Adam. She reveals she's running a blackmailing business. She reveals that Charles is the father of his children. She reveals info about James Grew, the Latin teacher. She says that he killed himself because of her. But crucially, he doesn't believe that Charles is the father of her children. Quote, listen my darling, and remember, how many times did I let you come near enough me to have children? ''You were hurt,'' says Adam. ''You were terribly hurt. Once,'' said Kate, ''just once.'' ''The pregnancy made you ill,'' he protested. ''It was hard on you,'' she smiled at him sweetly. ''I wasn't too hurt for your brother.'' But crucially, he doesn't believe her. She wants desperately to break Adam's spirit, but she fails. Quote, ''Kate sat staring at the door. Her eyes were desolate.'' It's as if something has clicked deep inside her subconscious. Quote, ''I'm free. She's gone.'' He visits Will Hamilton a Salinas who runs a garage and asks to buy a car and he mentions Sam. Quote, such a man doesn't really die, Adam said, and he was discovering it himself. I can't think of him dead. He seems maybe more alive to me than before. That's true, said Will, and it was not true to him. To Will, Samuel was dead. I think of things, he said, Adam went on. When he said them, I didn't listen very closely, but now they come back and I can see his face when he said them. So, will Charles's dalliance be discovered? Is answered. Back at the ranch, Adam chats with Lee and he talks of Chinese funerals. Quote My people bury them with drums and scatter papers to confuse the devil's roast pigs instead of flowers on the grave. We're a practical people and always a little hungry, but our devils aren't very bright. We can outthink them. That's some progress. And it's interesting that it's born in the USA, yet it's such strong ties to China still. And Adam talks about meeting Kathy. Quote, Adam said slowly, I can't understand it. I can't believe there is such a creature in the world. Lee says, The trouble with you, Occidentals, is that you don't have devils to explain things with. Lee reveals he wants to leave to open a bookstore. And Adam says, Look, help me know my kids first. Lee is really embracing his Chinese heritage. Lee refers to Sam as his father in a touching scene. Quote, I want to scatter devil papers, Lee said. I want to put a little roast pig on the grave of my father. Then we're introduced beautifully to Cal and Aaron, who are 11 year old boys. Quote, That year the rains had come so gently that the Salinas River did not overflow. A slender stream twisted back and forth in its broad bed of grey sand, and the water was not milky with silt, but clear and pleasant. The willows that grow in the river were well-leafed, and the wild blackberry vines were thrusting their spiky new shoots along the ground it was very warm for march and the kite wind blew steadily from the south and turned up the silver undersides of the leaves against the perfect cover of vine and bramble and tangled drift sticks a little grey brush rabbit sat quietly in the sun Drying his breast fur, wet by the grass dew of his early feeding. The rabbit's nose crinkled and his ears slewed around now and then, investigating small sounds that might possibly be charged with danger to a brush rabbit. There had been a rhythmic vibration in the ground, audible through the paws, so that ears swung and nose wrinkled, but that had stopped. Then there had been a movement of willow branches twenty five yards away and downwind, so that no odor of fear came to the rabbit. For the last two minutes there had been sounds of interest, but not of danger. A snap and then a whistle, like that of the wings of a wild dove. The rabbit stretched out one hind leg, lazily in the warm sun. There was a snap and a whistle and a grunting thud on fur. The rabbit sat perfectly still and then his eyes grew. A large bamboo arrow was thrust through his chest, and its iron tipped deep in the ground on the other side. The rabbit slumped over on his side, and his feet ran and scampered in the air for a moment before he was still. From the willow two crouching boys crept. They carried four-foot bows, and tufts of arrows stuck their feathers up from the quivers behind their left shoulders. They were dressed in overalls and faded blue shirts, but each boy wore one perfect turkey tail feather, tied with tape against his temple. The boys moved cautiously, bending low, self-consciously towing in like Indians. The rabbit's flutter of death was finished when they bent over to examine their victim. Such a gorgeous evocation of the Salinas Valley habitat. Can you imagine growing up in that wilderness? Anyway, Cal reveals to Aaron that their mother may not, quote, be in heaven. He overheard in a store that she may have run away. Mr. and Mrs. Bacon and their daughter, Abra, appear at Adam's, having been caught in the storm. The twins are fascinated by strangers. Mr. and Mrs. Bacon inquire about Adam's land, and there's an interesting philosophy of the poor and the rich. Quote, Both Mr. and Mrs. Bacon were looking at Adam now, and he knew he had to make some explanation for letting his good land run free. He said, "'I guess I'm a lazy man, and my father didn't help me when he left me enough to get along on without working.' He dropped his eyes, but he could feel the relief on the part of the Bacons. It was not laziness if he was a rich man. Only the poor were lazy, just as only the poor were ignorant. A rich man who didn't know anything was spoiled or independent.' As the Bacons waffle on to Adam about schooling, Adam has an epiphany. He will take the boys to see Charles, who he has not seen for ten years. Mr Bacon says the schools are better in Salinas. And the children chat. Abra and Aaron like each other. Aaron runs to get the box to put a rabbit in as a gift for Abra. But while he's gone, Cal tells Abra that there will be something that bites in the box. So she throws it out of the carriage as she's going home. And Aaron is mortified. He says, quote, I wanted to marry her. And Cal reminds me of that brooding dark Charles, and Aaron reminds me of the sunnier Adam. Cal gets the idea from Abra that his mother might be buried somewhere, because they've been told she's dead. Adam says she was shipped back home though. And Adam tells the boys they're moving to Slinus, where the Bacons and incidentally Kathy live. Lee says to Adam, you should tell the boys the truth like my father did to me about my mother. And Adam says to Lee, you must tell me about your mother. And so he does. He tells the heartbreaking story of his parents' travel to America. His mother was disguised as a man doing hard labour. And the birth of Lee and the death of Lee's mother. It's a painfully moving chapter full of the deepest love and deepest despair. Adam writes a letter to Charles asking him to visit. Quote, P.S. I always loved you because you are my brother. Will Hamilton drives up to Adams Ranch delivering a car and then we have this funny history of the difficulty of getting old cars to work which you just take for granted these days quote it is hard now to imagine the difficulty of learning to start drive and maintain an automobile not only was the whole process complicated but one had to start from scratch today's children breathe in the theory habits and idiosyncrasies of an internal combustion engine in their cradles but then you started with a blank belief that it would not run at all and sometimes you were right also to start the engine of a modern car you do just two things turn a key and touch the starter everything else is automatic the process used to be more complicated it required not only a good memory a strong arm an angelic temper and a blind hope but also a certain amount of practice of magic so that a man about to turn the crank of a Model T might be seen to spit on the ground and whisper a spell Will travels back to Selenus in a horse and cart quote he's saying I send out a mechanic tomorrow the cart won't start I can't help noting that Lee is still at Adam's after his heartfelt plea to leave the ranch back in chapter 26. And then we have this hilarious chapter, a young mechanic showing Adam, Lee, Cal and Aaron how to start the car with his famous catchphrase, call me Joe. And his actual name, we find out at the end of the chapter, is Roy. Here we've got it's a hilarious effect, this disguising of identity. Adam drives to Salinas with Cal, Lee and Aaron. The postmaster has a letter saying that Charles died six months previously and he's left $100,000 to be split between Adam and his wife. So there's the answer to what will happen to Charles. It's tricky that it's split with Kathy. Cal says to Aaron, I think Uncle Charles was rich. I'm going to find out. And Aaron says to Cal, why are you sneaky and mean? Quote, Well, about the rabbit and sneaking here in the car. And you did something to Abra. I don't know what, but it was you made her throw the box away. Ho, said Cal. Wouldn't you like to know? But he was uneasy. Aaron said slowly, I wouldn't want to know that. I'd like to know why you do it. You're always at something. I just wonder why you do it. I wonder what it's good for. A pain pierced Cal's heart. His planning suddenly seemed mean and dirty to him. He knew that his brother had found him out, and he felt a longing for Aaron to love him. He felt lost and hungry, and he didn't know what to do. Lee forces Adam to confront the fact that Kathy still married to Charles and is due $50,000. Charles is shocked and still thinks his brother is guiltless of any sexual entanglement with Cathy. Quote... "'Would your brother, if he knew,' and this is Lee speaking, "'would your brother, if he knew where she is and what she's doing, "'want her to have the money? "'Court's always try to follow the wishes of the testator. "'My brother would not want that,' said Adam. "'And then he remembered the girls upstairs in the tavern "'and Charles's periodic visits. "'Maybe you'll have to think for your brother,' said Lee. "'What your wife is doing is neither good nor bad. "'Saints can spring from any soil. "'Maybe with this money she would do some fine thing. "'There's no springboard to philanthropy like a bad conscience.' Adam shivered. She told me what she would do if she had money. It was closer to murder than charity. You don't think she should have the money then? Adam says. She said she would destroy many reputable men in Salinas. She can do it. Lee believes that Adam will give her half the money because of his honest, open nature. Lee wishes he could see the best path is to hide the money, even if it's not technically, quote, the letter of the law. So Lee is angry that Adam does not have, quote, the glory, that ability to decide his own future. Lee says, quote, Your course is drawn, what you will do is written, written in every breath you've ever taken. Cal overhears them discuss his mother, evidently alive, and he prays to God not to be mean. And when Aaron says, what did you hear? Cal says, quote, They're going to send flowers to her grave by train. Adam decides to visit Kathy, and this is really tense. How will she react? What will she say? What will he say? Maybe we, as the reader, have been duped in some way. Maybe Adam will do something completely unexpected, like murder perhaps, perhaps far fetched. Or perhaps Kathy will end up killing Adam, knowing that she will get Charles's money. Maybe Adam will end up being on a power trip and somehow hold her to ransom and force her to give up the incriminating photos. I just don't know, but it's very exciting. Will she be worried that the letter, maybe, dealing with the lawyers will incriminate her in the arson case? Anyway, she looks at the letter and says... Quote, There's a permanent order in the sheriff's office left there by the old sheriff that if I ever use your name or admit I'm your wife, I'll get a floater out of the country and out of the state. So, of course, the floater. Adam has the power and Kathy can't cope. Adam has regained the upper hand through love rather than hate. Quote, I'll find the trick. I'll find it, says Cathy. Adam said, I guess you can't understand it. I don't much care. There are so many things I don't understand. I don't understand how you could shoot me and desert your sons. I don't understand how you or anyone could live like this. There isn't really a trick. And I love how he towers over her. Have a listen to this. Quote, adam stopped and slowly turned and his eyes were thoughtful i hadn't considered before he said and he moved toward her until he towered over her and she had to tilt back her head to look into his face i said i didn't understand about you he said slowly just now it came to me what you don't understand what don't i understand mr mouse he says you know about the ugliness in people you showed me the pictures you use all the sad weak parts of a man and god knows he has them adam went on astonished at his own thoughts But you, yes, that's right, you don't know about the rest. You don't believe I brought you the letter because I don't want your money. You don't believe I loved you. And the men who come to you here with their ugliness, the men in the pictures, you don't believe those men could have goodness and beauty in them. You see only one side and you think, more than that, you're sure that's all there is. He goes on. Some men can't see the colour green, but they may never know they can't. I think you are only a part of a human. I can't do anything about that, but I wonder whether you ever feel that something invisible is all around you. It would be horrible if you knew it was there and couldn't see it or feel it. That would be horrible. Yeah, I love that towering over her. She's forced to look up. Finally, he's getting the upper hand, and he's not so Mr Mouse anymore. Perhaps he was right not to listen to Lee's advice so well plotted of course the floater steinbeck your wooden box is so well made now will this power vacuum cause her to kill adam this is what i'm thinking what might be about to happen adam visits olive hamilton and we discover she's married to an ernest steinbeck and it's beautiful the house they live in It was an immaculate and friendly house, grand enough but not pretentious, and it sat inside its white fence, surrounded by its clipped lawn, and roses and catanistas lapped against its white walls. Adam walked up the wide veranda steps and rang the bell. Olive came to the door and opened it a little, while Mary and John peeked around the edges of her. The narrator is called John Steinbeck, and this is a big revelation for me. I wonder how autobiographical this novel is. So the thoughts... Quote, I believe monsters are born to human parents. Could be the authors. Anyway, Adam wants to chat with Sam's wife, Lisa. And I can't help remembering that she said to Sam about Adam, quote, you don't change Adam, he changes you. So I wonder what her attitude will be like. There's a picture on the wall of Sam whose eyes followed a child about the room. And it reminds me of Adam saying to Will, such a man doesn't really die. Quote, on the wall hung a huge tinted photograph of Samuel, which had captured a cold and aloof dignity, a scrubbed and dressed remoteness which did not belong to him living. There was no twinkle in the picture of him, nor any of his inspected joyousness. The picture hung in a heavy gold frame. And to the consternation of all children, its eyes followed a child about the room. And the parrot is hilarious. He learns Dessie is moving back to live on the ranch with Tom, so he may be able to buy her house if he wants to move to Salinas. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Lisa says, please visit Tom. He's lonely. Lonely on his own in a big ranch in the middle of nowhere. Writing, brooding, poetry, no doubt. I knew he wouldn't be happy there. Anyway, he bumps into Will at the restaurant and Will says to Adam, quote, yes, Tom is moping around like a monument. I've never heard that expression before, like a monument. But there we are. Will also says to Adam, I don't want Desi to go there. She has a flourishing business here. And Desi's good humour is infectious, quite literally. In the next Mm -hmm. chapter, the narrator John Steinbeck shows how her positivity inspires the Morrison family quote the to Desi might carry its charge into two days but more before it petered out and the little headaches came back and business was not so good as last year that's how Desi was and that's what she could do she carried excitement in her arms just as Samuel had she was the darling she was the beloved of the family her business is not running as well as Will thinks quote times were changing and the ready-made dress was becoming popular it was no longer a disgrace to wear one can you imagine a time when it was a disgrace to wear a ready-made dress wow (laughs) Will tries to dissuade Dessie from staying with Tom quote Tom's not himself you shouldn't be alone with him and he carries on but now he's broody he doesn't talk he goes walking alone in the hills at night I went out to see him and he's been writing poetry I was right. Pages of it all over the table. Dessie meets Tom at King City Station, except she doesn't just meet him. I think this is probably the most exciting and best platform meeting I've ever read. They literally dance together on the platform. They act like they've never been away. At the ranch, Dessie sees ghosts of her past family in her mind, in her memory. And Dessie is inspired by Tom's optimism. She will use his example to lift her out of despair. On the ranch with Tom, and her pains in her side are getting worse. They talk of going to Europe on holiday, and Tom decides a machine to pick acorns, but it's unsuccessful. And Dessie says, look, children can pick them for a prize bicycle. We call it the Great Acorn Contest. And Will reigns on both of their plans. It'll never work. And when Tom comes home, Desi is very sick and the doctor is called. Dessie dies and Tom berates himself for giving her salts. After a sort of mystical hypnotic party with all his shortcomings personified, for example, unfilial conduct and unkempt fingernails, he believes he murdered Desi. Quote, the grey one shouldered up in front. It was too late to stall with baby sins. This grey one was murder. Tom's hand felt the chill of the glass and saw the pearly liquid with the dissolving crystals still turning over and lucent bubbles rising. And it repeated aloud in the empty, empty room. This will do the job. Just wait till morning. You'll feel fine then. That's how it had sounded. Exactly how. And the walls and chairs and the lamp had all heard it and they could prove it. There was no place in the whole world for Tom Hamilton to live. And then the guilt leads to his suicide. Part four begins with our very, very good friend, John Steinbeck, author and narrator, philosophising on good and evil. Quote, It seems to me that if you or I must choose between two courses of thought or action we should remember our dying and try so to live that our death brings no pleasure to the world we have only one story all novels or poetry are built on the never-ending contest in ourselves of good and evil and it occurs to me that evil must constantly respawn while good while virtue is immortal vice is always a new fresh young face while virtue is venerable as nothing else in the world is so, there's not much grey area in this philosophy. Adams and the boys move to Salinas, and Lee leaves for California. It's a very, very sad parting. And I'm at this point pretty devastated that Lee's, Lee seems to be leaving the novel, but he returns six days later saying he was, quote, lonesome. And that was genuinely surprising. I really thought he was gone for good. Cal and Aaron go to their new school. They're in the seventh grade. And there's a Lacoon portrait wrapped in snakes. So snake there, the symbol, the evil snake. And there's a great description of the boys playing marbles, which really reminds me of just school days. It's very clear that there's a strong sense of the K and Ch sounding names like Cain, Charles... Caleb. They're the dark and brooding characters, whereas Abel, Adam, Aaron, they all begin with A. They're light, open characters. Abra, as well, she's very light and open. Abra is at school. Aaron and Abra hide under a tree, and Abra says she overheard he has a mother, and he swears he won't tell. They are in the House of Leaves and there's this wonderful description of this house of leaves. Quote, "'On the edge of the field stood a little pump house "'and a willow tree flourished beside it, "'fed by the overspill of water. "'The long skirts of the willow hung down nearly to the ground. "'Abra parted the switches like a curtain "'and went into the house of leaves "'made against the willow trunk by the sweeping branches. "'You could see out through the leaves, "'but inside it was sweetly protected and warm and safe. "'The afternoon sunlight came yellow through the ageing leaves.'" Aaron stays under the willow tree and reflects on Abra's words, quote, "If his mother was alive, his father was a liar. If one was alive, the other was dead." End quote. Lee moves in next to Reno's bakery. Adam talks to Lee about his refrigeration business plan, and Will thinks it's a bad idea. His plan of shipping refrigerated lettuce across the country seems to be failing. Aaron is angry at his father for losing the money in the scheme. They're now 15 years old. Abra still loves Aaron. She releases him from the promise, not to mention she overheard his mother is alive. And Cal finds it difficult to make friends. He craves the attention Aaron seems to be getting. People think Cal is, quote, suspicious and unpleasant. And Cal is shy. Quote, a little boy may cover his shyness with nonchalance, with bravado or with secrecy and once a boy has suffered rejection, he will find rejection even where it does not exist or worse, will draw it forth from people simply by expecting it. Cal takes to wandering around at night and one night he bumps into Rabbit Holman who initially notices Cal but then gets very drunk, forgets who Cal is and invites him along to Kate's. And I'm thinking this is gonna go badly wrong. I guess the best outcome. He reunites with his mum in a friendly way. We don't actually see what happens at Kate's. We just have the aftermath. Cal asking Lee to tell the truth about his mother. Cal is scared he may have some of that evil in him but Lee says, no, you have free will. Quote, thou mayest. Cal wants to tell his father he knows about Kate but he feels unable. And Aaron becomes very religious. Quote, He attended all services in the Episcopal Church, helped with flowers and leaves at feast times, and spent many hours with a young and curly-haired clergyman, Mr. Rolfe. Aaron's training in worldliness was gained from a young man of no experience, which gave him the ability for generalisation only inexperience can have. And it drives a wedge between his relationships with Abra and Cal. Quote, He spoke to Abra of the necessity of abstinence and decided that he would live a life of celibacy. Abra, in her wisdom, agreed with him, feeling and hoping that this phase would pass. Celibacy was the only state she had known. She wanted to marry Aaron and bear any number of his children, but for the time being she did not speak of it. She had never been jealous before, but now she began to find in herself an instinctive and perhaps justified hatred of the Reverend Mr Rolfe. Cal watched his brother triumph over sins he had never committed. He thought sardonically of telling him about his mother to see how he would handle it, but he withdrew the thought quickly. He didn't think Aaron could handle it at all. Now we have a really important chapter. Cal accidentally gets sent to jail for the night because of a raid on a gambling house. He's innocent though, just a spectator. And Adam reveals to his son that he also went to jail through no fault of his own. Cal's reaction is very similar to that of Charles in part one, if you remember. There's a shared sort of shame slash humanity that unites the father and the son. And at this point, I'm thinking, will he mention his mother? He's obviously desperate to mention that he knows about his mother. Anyway, it accidentally slips out that he does know about his mum, and they agree together to protect Aaron. I'm thinking, what a crucial chapter. Cal finally seems to be resolving long-felt issues with his father. Cal then stalks Kate for eight weeks and then dun 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 he approaches her and Kate says in that very cold manner what do you want quote "'Cal froze in his steps. "'He was suspended in time, barely breathing. "'Then he began a practice he had learned "'when he was very young. "'He observed and catalogued details "'outside his main object. "'He noticed how the wind from the south "'bent over the new little leaves "'of the tall privet bush. "'He saw the muddy path beat to black mush "'by many feet, and Kate's feet "'standing far to the side out of the mud.' He heard a switch engine in the southern Pacific yards, discharging steam in shrill, dry spurts. He felt the chill air on the growing fuzz on his cheeks. And all the time he was staring at Kate, and she was staring back at him. And he saw in the set and colour of her eyes and hair, even in the way she held her shoulders, high in a kind of semi-shrug, that Aaron looked very like her. He did not know his own face well enough to recognise her mouth and little teeth and wide cheekbones as his own. They stood thus for the moment between two gusts of the southern wind. She asked him to follow her to a private room. And I'm actually genuinely scared for Karen at this point. What is she going to do? She's so unpredictable and evil. She could be nice. She could be horrible. Certainly, she's very cynical. They're talking about Aaron Well, Cal's talking about Aaron, um, that he's a man of the church. And she says, quote, a man can do a lot of damage in the church. When someone comes here, he's got his guard up. But in church, a man's wide open. Cal really gets under her skin. Quote, Cal said, I don't think the light hurts your eyes. I think you're afraid. Get out, she cried. Go on, get out. Although Aaron is the man of God, is it actually Cal that will help Kate see the light? I've written in the margins. I'm hoping that could be the case, but if she's born a monster, maybe there's no hope for her. Cal's words, quote, I think you're afraid, rattles her. Kate collected Charles' money. And an old prostitute called Ethel appears to Kate and asks for some money. She threatens to blackmail Kate with her knowledge of Faye's death. She knows about the bottles used to administer the poison. And Kate gets her wrongly accused of robbery by a client. Ethel is banned from the state. The spectre of Charles rising up before Kate, specifically cleverness, which is what he represented, means that she's worried that this cleverness will link her to the poison bottles that was used to administer Faye's death. Cal asks Aaron if he wants to help farm the ranch after they end school one day and Aaron rejects the idea. Aaron is sad his dad lost money on this crazy lettuce idea and now he's upset that he might not be able to go to college. Cal approaches Will with a business proposition to pay back his father what he lost. When Will asks are you fond of him, his father that is, and Cal replies yes, we get an insight into Will's relationship to his family. Quote, Will had sensed his family, but he had not understood them, and they had accepted him without knowing there was anything to understand. And now this boy came along. Will understood him, felt him, sensed him, and recognised him. This was the son he should have had, or the brother, or the father. And the cold wind of memory changed to a warmth toward Cal, which gripped him in the stomach and pushed up against his lungs. Just like Charles' gift of a knife to his father, he tries to buy his love. And Cal admits to this quote and this is will talking suppose you should get the money and give it to your father would it cross your mind that you were trying to buy his love and cal says yes sir it would and it would be true will and cal partner up to sell beans for the european war effort the beginning of the next chapter starts with a great quote a war comes always to someone else but ultimately the war does come to America. Adam is impressed that Aaron is doing so well at school. Adam says, I wish Cal had some ambition. And I can see that the Adam-Charles relationship with their father is repeating itself. Adam even considers rewarding Aaron with a gold watch. Mr Rolfe discusses with Aaron that a lady of, quote, owner of a house of ill fame has been coming to church, and Mr Rolfe thinks he may be able to offer her salvation. And I'm not sure whether that's for spiritual reasons. Let's not forget her thoughts on the church that I just mentioned, that she thinks a man is open in the church, not closed, and maybe can be turned easier. Liberates Aaron for not telling his father immediately that he passed the exams. And Lee says to Aaron, look, your father has been living for this. Abra's spending a lot of time at the Trask house. Abra says to Lee, I don't think I'll ever be good or pure enough for Aaron. Quote, I'm always afraid he'll see something in me that isn't the one he made up. I'll get mad or I'll smell bad or something else. He'll find out. Maybe not, said Lee, but it must be hard living the lily maid, the goddess virgin and the other all at once. Humans just do smell bad sometimes. She moved towards the table. Lee, I wish... Don't spill flour on my floor, he said. What do you wish? It's from my figuring out, I think Aaron, when he didn't have a mother, why he made her everything good he could think of. I love that little detail of her spilling the flour on the floor. Just to prove her point, she's not perfect. And Abra asks whether Aaron's mother is alive and Lee finally says yes. Cal enters excited. He has a present for his father. And we know that Adam is going to ignore or berate Cal's present because the point of the book, in part, is history repeating itself. I may be proved wrong, but I'm not holding out any hope. Abra says to Cal, I'm bad. And Cal says to Abra, Aaron will knock that out of you. Cal admits he goes to, quote, bad houses. And surely they're going to end up together. They seem a perfect match, Cal and Abra. There's a great character portrait of Joe Valerie, Kate's assistant. Kate has some information on him, which means that he's under her thumb. Quote, she felt that she could trust Joe because she had in her files a notation relating to one Joseph Fenuto, who had walked away from a San Quentin road gang in the fourth year of a five-year sentence for robbery. Kate had never mentioned this to Joe Valerie, but she thought it might have a soothing influence on him if he got out of hand. Useful. Joe says to Kate... There's a hick who came in from King City, spending seven hundred dollars, and I'm thinking to myself, could it be Mr. Edwards who left Kate for dead? And will that story get resolved? Will her burning her parents' house be found out? Kate says to Joe, "Find Ethel. I'll give you five hundred dollars. Just bring me her address and keep it secret." Kate is worried about the information Ethel has. She berates herself for not paying her a monthly and keeping her close. So Joe tracks down Ethel, and it transpires that she was murdered. Joe knows Ethel is valuable to Kate, and he's going to try to blackmail her. And then Kate muses on killing Ethel with food, but she doesn't know she's dead. And then Joe comes in. He holds all the cards, and since he knows Ethel's dead, and he lies about Ethel, he says, quote, "'She's coming back to Salinas and laying low, and this perturbs Kate so much, and she says, leave it.' Joe knows he has some power, but he's not sure yet how to use it to his advantage. Quote, He decided to let her brood on it till, say, next week. Let her relax and then bring up Ethel again. He did not know what his weapon was or how he was going to use it, but he did know that it was very sharp and he itched to use it. The war rages on in Europe. Poor Mr Fenschel, the local German, cries when the narrator and his sister are rude to him. And then we've got this poignant philosophy on war, quote, there is no dignity in death in battle, mostly that is a splashing about of human meat and fluid and the result is filthy but there is a great and almost sweet dignity in the sorrow, the helpless, the hopeless sorrow that comes down over a family with the telegram, nothing to say, nothing to do and only one hope, I hope he didn't suffer and what a forlorn and last choice hope that is. Adam Trask works on the draft board. Quote, Adam Trask had seen a war, a little war of manoeuvre and butchery, but at least he had experienced the reversal of the rules where a man is permitted to kill all the humans he can. And that echoes the previous thoughts from part one. Quote, soldiers are the most tested of all. Lee and Adam philosophise on Timshell, thou mayest and the responsibility of sending men and young boys to war. Aaron doesn't enjoy college much. It doesn't live up to his vision. He's got this quite interesting vision. Quote, his picture, never really inspected, had been of clean-eyed young men and immaculate girls, all in academic robes and converging on a white temple on the crown of a wooded hill in the evening. Their faces were shining and dedicated, and their voices rose in chorus, and it was never any time but evening. He had no idea where he had got this picture of academic life, perhaps from the Doré illustrations of Dante's Inferno with its masked and radiant angels. Leland Stanford University was not like that. Joe Valerie bumps into handyman and local gossip, Alf Nicholson, who thinks it's mysterious how Kate got Faye's property. And Joe lies to Kate. He says, quote, I've met someone who knows she's in Salinas. And Kate says to Joe, I wrongly got her floated out. I need to make it up to her. And while she's doing this, she then handles the poison in a tube around her neck. At least I assume it's poison. Abra, Lee, Adam and Cal collect Aaron from the college at the train station. It's just about to be Thanksgiving and they're all meeting up for Thanksgiving. Aaron says to Cal, I want to quit college and farm the ranch with Abra. And Cal, at this point, is nervous about giving the money to his father. As I predicted, it goes really badly wrong. Adam says to Cal, Give it back to the farmers you robbed. In fact, his father is quite horrible about the present of the $15,000. Quote, I would have been so happy if you could have given me, well what your brother has. Pride in the thing he's doing, gladness in his progress. Money, even clean money, doesn't stack up with that. His eyes widened a little and he said, Have I made you angry, son? Don't be angry. If you want to give me a present, give me a good life. That would be something I could value. Cal felt that he was choking. His forehead streamed with perspiration and he tasted salt on his tongue. He stood up suddenly and his chair fell over. He ran from the room, holding his breath. Poor Cal. He apologises and he takes the money. And then Cal meets Aaron in the street at night. And Cal says to Aaron, I want to show you something. The next chapter, we see two sergeants recruiting an underage boy. And we don't know who that underage boy is at this point. We soon learn out that it is Aaron. Distraught at learning the truth about his mother, He escapes to war. So this is the retribution. Instead of Charles's punches that we got in part one, this is Cal taking it out on Aaron, taking him to see his mother. This is his punishment. Joe feels he's losing ground or power with Cathy. She writes a letter to the police. Cathy drinks the poison and leaves everything to Aaron in her will. And then Joe discovers Kate's dead body But at that point, the police turn up, he runs away, but he gets shot dead. The sheriff destroys all the incriminating blackmail photos that he finds. And Aaron has definitely run off to the army because Adam receives a telegram. Cal slowly burns the money, bill by bill, whilst Lee watches. So I would call this the chapter of burning, purging of two major vices, sex, with all those photos, and money. Lee says to Cal, when your father feels better, you must tell him you told Aaron about your mother. And Abra confesses her love for Cal. Quote, when you're a child, you're the centre of everything. Everything happens for you. Other people, they're only ghosts furnished for you to talk to. But when you grow up, you take your place and your, your own size and shape. Things go out of you to others and come in from other people. It's worse, but it's much better too. I'm glad you told me about Aaron. Why? Because now I know I didn't make it all up. He couldn't stand to know about his mother because that's not how he wanted the story to go and he wouldn't have any other story so he tore up the world. It's the same way he tore me up, Abra, when he wanted to be a priest. Cal said, I'll have to think. Give me my books, she said. Tell thee I'll come. I feel free now. I want to think too. I think I love you, Cal. Abra burns all of Aaron's letters so there's more burning, a real purging going on and adam dreams about his father adam says to lee he was a thief and lee says i love this character he reflects on time and the stolen money quote there was a quiet rising joy in lee it was the joy of change time is drawing down for adam he thought time must be drawing down for me but i don't feel it i feel immortal once when i was very young i felt mortal but not anymore death has receded he wondered if this were a normal way to feel And he wondered what Adam meant, saying his father was a thief. Part of the dream, maybe, and then Lee's mind played on the way it often did. Suppose it were true, Adam, the most rigid, honest man it was possible to find, living all his life on stolen money. Lee laughed to himself. Now this second will, and Aaron, whose purity was a little on the self-indulgent side, living all his life on the profits from a whorehouse. Was this some kind of joke, or did things balance so that if one went too far in one direction, an automatic slide moved on the scale, and the balance was re-established? He thought of Sam Hamilton. He had knocked on so many doors. He had the most schemes and plans, and no one would give him any money. But of course, he had so much. He was so rich. You couldn't give him any more. Riches seem to come to the poor in spirit, the poor in interest and joy. To put it straight, the very rich are a poor bunch. Lee gives Abra a beautiful jade button that used to belong to his mother. And then Abra tells Lee she likes Cal and has burned Aaron's letters. Quote, I burned all of Aaron's letters. Lee says, did he do bad things to you? Abra says, no, I guess not. Lately I never felt good enough. I always wanted to explain to him that I was not good. Lee says, and now that you don't have to be perfect, you can be good. Is that it? She says, I guess so. Maybe that's it. Cal wonders where his mum may be buried. Adam begins to feel better. He's been having problems with his vision and his movement. Abra tells Cal that her father may be in trouble as well for stealing money. And then we have this awfulness of receiving these telegrams during the war. Quote, The front doorbell rang. There it is. That's what I was listening for. Let it ring. I'm not going to be led around by feelings. Let it ring. This is Lee speaking. But it did not ring again. A black weariness fell on Lee, a hopelessness that pressed his shoulders down. He laughed at himself. I can go and find it's an advertisement under the door, or I can sit here and let my silly old mind tell me death is on the doorstep. Well, I want the advertisement lee sat in the living room and looked at the envelope in his lap and suddenly he spat at it all right he said i'm coming god damn you he ripped it open and in a moment laid it on the table and turned it over with the message down he stared between his knees at the floor no he said that's not my right nobody has the right to remove any single experience from another life and death are promised we have a right to pain his stomach contracted i haven't got the courage i'm a cowardly yellow belly i couldn't stand it He went into the bathroom, measured three teaspoons of elixir of bromide into a glass and added water until the red medicine was pink. He carried the glass to the living room and put it on the table. He folded the telegram and shoved it in his pocket. He said aloud, I hate a coward. God, how I hate a coward. His hands were shaking and a cold perspiration dampened his forehead. At four o'clock he heard Adam fumbling at the doorknob. Lee licked his lips. He stood up and walked slowly to the hall. He carried the glass of pink fluid and his hand was steady. So brilliantly described. Aaron is dead. Adam has a stroke. Cal blames himself. Quote, I did it, Cal cried. I'm responsible for Aaron's death and for your sickness. I took him to Kate's. I showed him his mother. That's why he went away. I don't want to do bad things, but I do them. And he thinks the look in his father's eye are accusatory, too. Quote, I'm a murderer. He knows it. It was in his eyes. He said it with his eyes. There's nowhere I can go to get away. There's no place. But Lee says, don't worry, it could be his brain centres are affected. It might be the pressure on that part of his brain that governs his seeing. He says, go to Abra. Cal goes to see Abra. And they both have faulty parents. Quote, Cal said, Abra, I've killed my brother and my father is paralysed because of me. She took his arm and clung to it with both hands. Cal said, didn't you hear me? She said, I heard you. He says, Abra, my mother was a whore. She says, I know, you told me, my father is a thief. He says, I've got her blood, Abra, don't you understand? She says, I've got his. And then Lee says that he's like freshly fired China. Quote, maybe you'll come to know that every man... In every generation is refired. Does a craftsman, even in his old age, lose his hunger to make a perfect cup, thin, strong, translucent? He held his cup to the light. All impurities burned out and ready for a glorious flux. And for that, more fire. And then either the slag heap or perhaps what no one in the world ever quite gives up, perfection. And then Lee takes Cal to see Adam. Quote, He did a thing in anger, Adam, because he thought you had rejected him. The result of his anger is that his brother and your son is dead. And Lee says to Adam, offer your son forgiveness. Quote, help him, Adam, help him. Give him his chance. Let him be free. That's all a man has over the beast. Free him. Bless him. The whole bed seemed to shake under the concentration. Adam's breath came quick with his effort and then slowly his right hand lifted, lifted an inch and then fell back. Lee's face was haggard. He moved to the head of the bed and wiped the sick man's damp face with the edge of the sheet. He looked down at the closed eyes. Lee whispered, Thank you, Adam. Thank you, my friend. Adam looked up with sick weariness. His lips parted and failed and tried again. Then his lungs filled. He expelled the air and his lips combed the rushing sigh. His whispered words seemed to hang in the air. Tim shell. His eyes closed and he slept so Adam's last words in the novel Timshel, thou mayest you have free will and then the novel ends some great ideas to come out of that novel let's just go through some of the things that I wanted to talk about separately from the summary the depiction of Kate is really interesting I think the small mouth and the teeth, her arrow-shaped tongue. She's really painted to be this horrible monster. Very snaky, vampiric with those teeth. Definite associations with eating that forbidden fruit. Obviously scars are an important theme all the way through, but I think it's an interesting change on scar when lee tells the boys to look at the star to see the mother's love he quote your mother loved you and she still does and lee gave me a star to look at he said maybe that was our mother and she would love us as long as that light was there and then there's quite a lot of humor the parrot in Lisa's room that swears the mechanic he says call me joe and he's not really called joe and then there's black humour as well the fussing nurse that lee has to usher out of the room some lovely details in the book. The mechanic switched to good humour when he's in control of engines, not people. And then they're just little things like the cups upside down in the saucers at Kate's brothel. Little details which make it homely but also clinical and business-like. We've also got the acceptance of sin and humanity. You're a jailbird, says Charles. And I don't believe it, Cal said, weakly. But the warmth, the closeness was so delicious that he clung to it we also got this respect for youngsters, and the narrator is almost age-blind. There are many examples in the book where the narrator dismisses age as a reason not to have understanding. For example, Lee says, a few girls are women from the moment they are born. Obviously, money and wealth are also a very important theme. Will's big car looks like a coffin, and is there a comment there about wealth representing some kind of death or stasis here? And then ageing as well. Lee's thoughts on ageing are hilarious. Quote... Laughter comes later, like wisdom teeth, and laughter at yourself comes last of all, in a mad race with death, and sometimes it isn't in time. Perhaps the most important idea is that of this Tim Shell. Ultimately, the book believes the characters have a choice in the actions they make. And thou mayest. I really like Desi. Her... Good humour and the way she talked to people really reverberated throughout the people that she interacted with. And I think there's an important equivalence to be made with genetics and the idea that you may have good or evil parents, but ultimately it's your decision whether you are good or evil. I think there appears to be a central dichotomy to the novel. The narrator seems to believe that people can be born monsters, i.e. Kathy. If she is born a monster, does this mean she has no free will as to whether to be good or evil? A monster, one would assume, can never choose to be good. If so, this flies in the face of what the narrator seems to be propounding, which is the idea of tim shall, thou mayest, the idea that a human has the ability to choose between good or evil, regardless of birth. Perhaps Cathy did not realise she had a choice. She could have, quote, gone through the motions, as Lee frequently advised. What do you think? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this idea of free will versus determinism in the novel. I've had a few emails stating how Cathy is a strong, independent woman operating in a patriarchal society. But as I mentioned in the previous podcast, to me, her character comes across as a typical trope with the message, quote, independence leads to dislike and rejection. Listen to this great quote from the book called Literary Theory of the Basics by Hans Berlton. Quote, Feminist critics have shown how often literary representations of women repeat familiar cultural stereotypes. Such stereotypes included the woman as an immoral and dangerous seductress, the woman as eternally dissatisfied shrew, the woman as cute but essentially helpless child, the woman as unworldly self-sacrificing angel and so on. Since the way female characters were standardly portrayed had not much in common with the way feminist critics saw and experienced themselves, these characters clearly were constructions, put together not necessarily by the writers who presented them themselves, but by the culture they belonged to, to serve a not-so-hidden purpose. If we look at the four examples I've given, we see immediately that female independence in the seductress and the shrew gets a strongly negative connotation, while helplessness and renouncing all ambition and desire are presented as endearing and admirable. The message is that dependence leads to indulgence and reverence, while independence leads to dislike and rejection. The desired effect, of which the writer clearly needs not be aware, is a perpetuation of the unequal power relations between men and women end of quote I think it could be argued that this idea could be applied to Kathy's character it also made me think about Desi and the difference between Desi and Kathy as independent women operating in this patriarchal society Desi remember runs a successful dressmaking business in town she's really funny and amusing and her dress shop is a bit of a haven for women Around Desi, women can act themselves. They don't have to be, quote, feminine, ladylike or dainty. Listen to this quote. The door was closed to men. It was a sanctuary where women could be themselves, smelly, wanton, mystic, conceited, truthful and interested. From this freedom came laughter's roars of laughter. I think it's really interesting to compare the characters of Cathy and Desi in the novel. They both have their independence, or at least as much independence as the society of the time will allow, yet they carve out very different lives for themselves. Both have bad outcomes. Desi receives this rejection from her lover, and I wonder if the novel holds an outdated opinion on strong, independent women. Let's have a look at Abra. She renounced ambition, and, well, she has a pretty happy ending what do you think I'd love to know your thoughts I'd like to talk a little bit now about next month's upcoming book Norwegian Wood by Haruki Murakami published in 1987 if you're reading alongside I'll be reading up to the end of chapter 7 just over halfway I chose it because I read the Wind-Up Bird Chronicles a couple of years ago and I really enjoyed it All I know about Murakami is that he is Japanese and he tends to write in this quite mythical, dreamy style. I don't know anything about Norwegian Wood, apart from the fact that it's a great John Lennon song. I'm sure that will come into the novel somehow. So I'm going to read the first page... I was 37 then, strapped in my seat as the huge 747 plunged through dense cloud cover on approach to the Hamburg airport. Cold November rains drenched the earth and lent everything the gloomy air of a Flemish landscape. The ground crew in rain gear, a flag atop a squat airport building, a BMW billboard. So, Germany again. Once the plane was on the ground, soft music began to flow from the ceiling speakers. A sweet orchestral cover version of the Beatles' Norwegian wood. The melody never failed to send a shudder through me, but this time it hit me harder than ever. I bent forward in my seat, face in hands to keep my skull from spitting open. Before long, one of the German stewardesses approached and asked in English if I was sick. No, I said. Just dizzy. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure, thanks. She smiled and left, and the music changed to a Billy Joel tune. I straightened up and looked out the plane window at the dark clouds hanging over the North Sea, thinking of what I had lost in the course of my life. times gone forever, friends who had died or disappeared, feelings I would never know again. The plane reached the gate. People began unlatching their seatbelts and pulling baggage from the storage bins, and all the while I was in the meadow. I could smell the grass, feel the wind on my face, hear the cries of the birds. Autumn 1969, and soon I would be twenty. The stewardess came to check on me again. This time she sat next to me and asked if I was all right. I'm fine, thanks, I said with a smile, just feeling kind of blue. I know what you mean, she said. It happens to me too, every once in a while. She stood and gave me a lovely smile. Well then, have a nice trip. Auf Wiedersehen. Auf Wiedersehen. Wow, what a, what a great opening extract. Uh, some really interesting things to, to come out of that, I think. First of all, um, Norwegian Wood, it's a song about a girl who leaves a boy. Could this song be triggering that memory? I like the way that Murakami in the first page is drawing from lots of different music. Norwegian Wood, we've got Kind of Blue, maybe there's a jazz reference there. Also Billy Joel, so a lot of music. And is Norwegian Wood going to be the sort of Proustian Madeline moment? It's going to just trigger that memory that's going going to go on and on. I really like when he reflects on times gone forever, friends who had died or disappeared, feelings I would never know again. I'm just wondering what they're going to be. In the very first paragraph, I think it's interesting because it sounds like it's a faulty memory because someone trying to remember details which perhaps don't exist because he says he saw the ground crew in wet weather gear and he's only just come through the clouds. So it worries me a bit and it makes me think that I can't fully trust this narrator's recollection of events. It feels like it could be an unreliable narrator. And the fact that he's in a jumbo jet at the outset is very interesting. He's completely at the mercy of something bigger than himself and perhaps he is going to be at the mercy of some kind of memory that's bigger than himself, something that's going to really dominate him. I think it's a great opening and I'm really looking forward to to reading the rest of the novel. And there we have it. Thank you, John Steinbeck, for a fabulous novel, East of Eden. I definitely recommend it to anyone who loves literature and thinking about the nature of good and evil. Thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. The email is bookshook at yahoo.com, or you can start a conversation at the Bookshook Goodreads group or at the Bookshook YouTube channel. Please follow the link in the podcast description. If you want to recommend a future book to read together, do let me know. I look forward to discussing the first part of Norwegian Wood at the next episode of Bookshook on the 14th of May. See you then.